0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Les Crusades, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L E C R E U S E T dot com.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member
3: supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at Heritage Radio Network.
4: Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's show, we have Magnus Nielsen come by to talk about the Nordic Baking Book, the second in the Nordic Cookbook series. He talks about the six year project, using his creative toolbox, and how his adventures took him all over to help people understand all the misconceptions about the Nordic baking scene. And in the second half, we have a musical performance from our archives by Cassandra Jenkins. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes.
5: We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes.
4: And welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, sitting across from me in this very warm, warm room
2: <laughs> yes,
4: uh, warm. inside <laughs> the Faden headquarters. Magnus Nielsen a Vatican, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for
6: having me. Yes. What a nice event last night. Yeah, it was. Swedish Consulate. Yeah. Did you get a tour? And actually, i have never been there before. Oh. I thought it was kind of. I, I didn't know that they had a house like that here. I know, I know there was consulate, but I didn't know that they had like a, a resident. Residences like
4: that. I know. Do you think... I wonder if, like, the upstairs is as immaculate as the front room. It's probably more immaculate. Right. It's like, <laughs> look, That's where they live. Right. It's just vaulted <laughs> it The yeah. unbolted ceilings. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, they probably got to Park Avenue when it was still possible to get to Park Avenue.
6: Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the deal is with exactly with that place, but I know that the one that they have in London, which is, like, even much bigger than that one on a similar type of address, that that was... Uh, signed as a lease in the 1700s, <laughs> and that they pay like 10 pounds a year indefinitely to lease it from the city of London. So maybe there is something like that going on here as well. Maybe. I mean, you hear like
4: 99 year leases as a long time, but yeah. like this is like a 9,000 year lease. Yeah,
6: this is indefinite.
4: London, yeah. London will last forever. <laughs> the, the, the kingdom is strong, and we can definitely give you the house on those terms. Yeah. Can you imagine like the renegotiation like 2357? <laughs> It's going to go from ten pounds to ten thousand million pounds. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, you got your training
6: after culinary school as a as a song. Actually, uh, I worked as a chef for quite a long time, and yeah. then I uh, stopped cooking and uh, started training as a sommelier. And um, what did
4: you take from being a psalm that when you went back into the kitchen, what what carried over?
6: I mean, I think that one of the greatest things that you're taught at wine school that all chefs should also be taught at some point is that, I mean, you, essentially you learn how to talk about perception in a way that people can relate to. You learn how to describe to someone in a way that they can understand roughly what they're going to experience. And that's something that's been tremendously helpful helpful for me in the kitchen as well. Uh, and it's something that I definitely learned like at wine school.
4: And um, do you feel that the, because, you know, I know that you're just tasting grapes, but you have all the varietals and all the things that taste like mm-hmm. pencil shavings, it tastes like earth, yeah, etc. Yeah, yeah. um, do you feel like that descriptiveness and, and that kind of like understanding the imagination carries over to the way when you taste something as diverse as all the, your ingredients? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And,
6: and the, the most important part I mean we have the same, I mean, everyone can taste. Uh, but what we are not all equipped to do is to describe what it is that we perceive, and that's like the greatest gift you get from studying wine, because the whole, you know, point of a sommelier is to help people to good, you know, to make good choices and prepare them for whatever it is that they're going to experience, uh, so that they are equipped to you know, experience that as well as possible. Um, and uh, I think that's like, you know, to gain that vocabulary um, and to learn how to talk about perception in a structured way that does not you know, that, that that doesn't just turn into like babbling, which very <laughs> easily happens. Um, that's uh, something that every chef should do, I think. Do you have a favorite descriptor from the wine world? Like a word
4: that is just so like evocative of tasting a wine that is Maybe pretentious or just
6: so wonderful. Oh, I don't know. I mean, there are so, there's so many that are like, they are like beyond the kitsch, you know, and they're like, like parodies of themselves, but like all of the, like the donkey's ass and like all of those things. But I don't think that anyone actually ever used them anymore, like in the professional world. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that you're, you're really, uh, uh so sort of well-schooled in when you're studying wine and pretty much any of the sort of major, uh, some of your programs. Uh, I mean, you, there is a way to to express yourself there is a conciseness in the way that you're being taught how to express yourself about perception that's very necessary because i mean all of those layers of you know admittedly funny and you know interesting descriptions they are just distractions from like the key points of uh, perception i think that if someone opened up a bottle of wine and said this tastes like fine
4: donkey ass I'd yeah. probably say I'll, I'll have another one yeah I'll, I'll probably go with a different
6: bottle <laughs> no but it, it, and I think that's like I mean, maybe you can you can see like on television you know they have some especially uh, you know perhaps 10 years ago people had like, that was sort of part of the deal that they had these very strange elaborate sort of descriptions of wine but uh, that sort of really besides the point because it doesn't I mean, the, the thing as well is that you, you can't possibly describe or relate to an aroma or flavor that you haven't experienced yourself. I mean, if I tell you that this smells like bananas and you've never seen a banana or smelled a banana, you have no idea what I'm saying. And and that's, what a, that's sort of one of the most important things, uh, and what, perhaps one of the reasons why the donkey's ass is sort of irrelevant as a description, uh, is that, I mean, you have to be able to talk about perception in a way that people can generally speaking, relate to. Otherwise, it's just useless.
4: When you went back home after cooking um, over in France, you, you have talked about being slightly disillusioned with the ingredients that you faced yeah. in there. Um, you've now also <coughs> recently been quoted as your job is to keep the original alive in a way that people can understand. Mm-hmm. What was the the journey of going from being dismayed by what was at home to really embracing it and celebrating it? I
6: mean... For me, I think that the, the, the biggest problem uh, with coming back having worked in a couple of restaurants in France uh, that all had a very strong expression um, was that my experience there made up such a significant part of my whole background as a, as a cook that it simply wasn't possible to, um, uh, to feel that whatever I produced was mine because it was so colored by those you know, few places. And back then I thought this was really hard and it wasn't pleasurable at all. And this in tandem with the fact that the the level of quality of the produce that I had to work with in Stockholm then uh, was just so much less good. Um, it was just, hungry. it was not a fun situation. And it was less good partly because uh, there's been a great development in uh, in the world of produce in Sweden, it's gotten a lot better, but it was also not so good because I didn't have the means to buy the best produce, uh, which naturally, like these restaurants where I used to work in France, they had all those means, you know, and the contacts. Um, and and that was what sort of led me to, uh, to, to go into the world of wines then.
4: And then once you got back and began to discover the heritage, began to have the means, who taught you? Who who along the early steps of your journey began to educate you about the
6: bounty of home? It was actually uh, my own discovery, uh, like a journey of my own discovery. It wasn't There wasn't a person there that sort of guided me around. It was more that I mean, I knew that all of these things were there. Uh, it's just that I never saw them as anything else but you know the daily staples of my own growing up. Essentially, they were never part of the repertoire of the restaurant, and um, and it, it was much more a process of me. Is, Learning to see past those sort of preconceptions about what produce is, uh, you know, uh, worthy of making the menu of a great restaurant and what isn't, um, and and that there was no one who told me how to do that. It was more of a, something that happened gradually.
4: And you were already cooking at Fabakin when this evolution began. Yeah. What were the some of the the early dishes that? you felt came out of like your daily life and you're kind of as you begin to interpret it into the menu. It was a late night. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was.
6: Sorry. Um, no, I mean, um, I don't have any great examples of that because for me, I've never actively planned that, Ooh, I'm going to invent uh, Mm. this type of dish now. And you know, it's, for me, it's all very intuitive. I've always aimed to, um, actively learn more and get better at the craft, learn new techniques, you know, uh, make the techniques I already do better than before and so on. And also to learn like new information on every field thinkable. But I've never done it with like the express purpose of creating a specific dish because for me that then turns into something that's not creativity. Creativity, it uh, can only really happen um, in the subconscious. I mean, if you, if you study creative theory, you very quickly realize that this is not sort of some magic act that is going on out of the thin air. There, there is a process that happens that's remarkably similar for all creative people. Um, but what I've learned is that for me at least, like, there is a distinction between uh, actual creative moments where our you know, subconscious has put together various building blocks that you have with you in your toolbox to something entirely new. And there's a difference between that and already knowing what it is that you're going to create when you start, because that's something else that's more, you know, just general problem solving. And there's not necessarily something bad with that, but for me, it's not what I'm interested in.
4: So how have you built your toolbox over the the years?
6: Uh, it's, It's, to me, it's always been about being open to as much influence as possible. Um, you know experiences being open to is uh, the world uh, and and really trying to register what 's going on there, not uh, in the sense that i mean i don 't want to go to uh, to a restaurant for example and see a dish and then find myself incorporating part of that dish in my own menu i mean I think that's very boring it doesn 't necessarily need to be less good for the end consumer doesn 't have to be. A bad thing because it happens all the time. It happens to me also, um, but that's not what I'm aiming for. I'm aiming for slightly more ethereal influences than that. I'd rather see parallels to my own uh, creative outlets in terms of cooking. You know, from other fields. You know, it can be yeah. Anything. Other disciplines. What what uh, disciplines do you pull on to inspire you? I mean, it really varies a lot, and I I'm, i mean, <laughs> I've always been very curious, I love learning new things, and it almost doesn't matter what it is. Um, I mean, if there is a, a book that's very heavy in facts, I'm going to enjoy it, and it doesn't matter on what subject, you know, but, and then, I mean, I, I, I tend to... Uh, uh, sort of uh, create uh, this sort of periodic small obsessions with various things and they're usually tied into something that I do at the moment. So, I mean, um, the last few years I've been really into gardening and I've done that a lot and subsequently I've also read, I mean, if, if, there, if it's been written about gardening, I've read it essentially. Um, and, and now the latest thing is that uh, a few months ago I actually bought an apple orchard in South Sweden, which is, I mean, it's a beautiful place. Um, and I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with it yet. The only thing I know is that I want to be there at some point to some extent, spend part of my summer there and learn uh, how to sort of manage this place and how to essentially grow the best apple possible. Uh, so after that, naturally, I, you know, I read uh, what's there to read about apples and that's, that stuff is going to influence the menu. It, it will, not necessarily by me growing an apple, but that knowledge is now part of my creative toolbox. You know? How do you, I mean, you have no idea how it will
4: influence, but okay, where? what level of quality are the apples at right now? They're great. They're great, okay. So the ceiling but, is not too high. Yeah,
6: but you know, the thing is that it doesn't necessarily have to be about the apples, because just the fact that uh, someone like me spends months reading about a specific discipline like that, the you know the the craft of, of uh, growing uh, traditional orchard fruits, um, that's going to feed into the creative process. Like whether the apples are ever going to make the menu or not, it's almost irrelevant, you know, because uh, that that I mean that naturally they will. But that's like that has nothing to do with creativity. And that's it's not the just point. Like availability and it's not the same thing. Right. But I'm sure there's going to be like bits and pieces of information there. That somehow they're going to end up in a dish, you know, maybe mm-hmm. something that has nothing to do with the fruits.
4: Five years from now, I'll, I'll ask you. Yes, please do. Um, so uh, the Nordic Baking book is your, is your newest book. And, and before we get to that, you've, you've done three other books yeah. um, for, for Fade In. Uh, what, what's changed in the process from the, the first one? And uh, what tools did you put into your toolbox from the first book to the
6: second book to the third book? that helped you evolve
4: the the style and the process and and what you got out of
2: it?
6: I mean, the the first book, Faviken, it's a book that's all about what the restaurant was then and what I hoped for it to become. Uh, It came out when the restaurant was only a few years old, like three or four years old, um, in 2012. And uh, it was the first time I ever wrote for anyone else to read it. Um, It was the first time it was edited. It was the first time that I shared all of those IDs that I had with the world essentially. Um, and it's been very, very important for the restaurant because it served as a as a sort of a roadmap for for us. And it's been a way to communicate what we do to a lot of people who subsequently come there. Roadmap for the for the consumer, yeah. for the no, fans. for, uh, for, us, as well, too. for oh. us too, you know, because if you have a written document that says that this is what we are, uh, it's much easier for everyone who comes in there and You know, to just relate to that, you know, and I should say, funnily enough, but it's not. I mean, it it kind of makes total sense when you think about it. That of course it's going to be easier. Um, And that book, uh, as I said, it was just all about my opinions and my ideas. And then these other books, they're not. They're about like the complete opposite of that. They're about, you know, uh, Nordic food culture in a broader sense. They're they're written and researched to document and chronicle what Nordic food culture in the home actually looks like. So there's not a single recipe in the Nordic cookbook or the Nordic baking that's actually mine. Um, They've all been collected by myself, you know, in interviews, by meeting people, by um, getting access to people's recipes, books, uh, by looking at previously published sources and, you know, pretty much all the information that's out there, uh, which created a huge, amount of material that was then narrowed down essentially to be as representative as possible for as many people as possible throughout the Nordic region to create a snapshot of what Nordic food culture actually looks like in the home today.
4: We're going to take a quick musical break and then we're going to get back to your brand new book here on Tunes. <laughs>
7: With clouds in my mind Flying in the sky Flying in the sky Flying to a clean state
4: the general public, can you define what
6: encapsulates the Nordic region? So the Nordic region uh, is not a homogenous cultural region. It's a very diverse part of the world, simply because it's geographically vast. Um, you'll have people spread out over an area that's several times larger than the whole rest of Europe, uh, over many, many different climate. zones, so naturally creating a very, very diverse food culture.
4: The other alternative title for this book is the Nordic Grain Dishes, Baking Pastries, Desserts, Sweets, Jams and Cordials, and Anything Else Vague Associated with the Affirmation (laughs) Subjects book,
2: Um,
4: which seems like a, I would say a (laughs) catch-all title, but you almost argue with yourself of what defines baking. Uh, You you wrote the the first book, and this seems um, that this book captures all the things that couldn't fit so easily into that. So what, what made it into this book and what do you, for the second part of this kind of epic um, research project, what did you want people to get out of it and what did you want them to learn mm.
6: from diving into it? <coughs> so, I mean, when when we uh, uh, agreed on making this book, me and the publisher, I mean, it was... Uh, uh, Written in the contract how many recipes it was going to be, it was going to be called the Nordic Baking Book, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, what no one really thought about was how to actually define what baking is. And it might seem a bit dumb, but it's very difficult actually. Where do you draw the line? I mean, uh, is the oven the defining factor? Well, there's plenty of things that uh, I think you know, belongs in a baking book. There are many pastries that doesn't use an oven, for example, there are many things like that, uh, that aren't cooked in like a box with warmth in it, that still should make the book. So, that was not an option. Um, And and there are many, I mean, I tried various ways of sort of defining what was going to go in the book or not by being, uh, you know, by some kind of um, uh, consistent rule system. And it did none of the worked. So in the end, I just put everything that I felt belonged in the book on, a, on an emotional level there. <laughs> and it turns out that it's pretty much everything then that's based in, on grain. So the traditional baked stuff, like the breads and pastries and things, but then it's also all the unbaked pastries and things. And um, there's also like all of the porridges, all of the, uh, you know, the pancakes and waffles and things like that, that aren't technically baked either, but that definitely belong in a book like this. And then I added, uh, as you said before as well, a chapter on jams and uh, cordials, too. Because, I mean, which other book would they go into? And what are you going to put on top of it? You can't exactly. Stuff I mean, it's intimately connected, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's like, you know, where would they otherwise fit? So they, it felt like they made sense there and that would put them in. <laughs> the Nordic Jam book. It's like just a little novella. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And no one would buy that, probably. <laughs> I mean, if it, it was
4: beautiful and, and shot by you, who who knows? You mentioned grain, uh, and I, I think that you open your forward with the concept of the seed and as the, the incredible energy storing uh, yeah. unit that nature gave us, which is such an amazing positioning of it. Where you could start this with like you know, ba- you know, these traditions go back all these years, but you start with it as like a connection to nature. How have you found that um, has uh, running a farm and and running your fields and everything? How did you feel and why do you think it was so important to start there for the baking book?
6: I mean, if you look at what baking is, it's essentially like a catch-all term for all of the ways that humanity figured out to make um, stored grains and to some extent dairy in combination with stored grains uh, delicious and edible and digestible. And, and that really says quite a lot of, on the importance of these food groups in uh, our sort of historical diet. And the way we eat today, we're quite a lot, like quite a big part of our caloric intake will come from um, uh, animal proteins and fat. Um, it's very new. I mean, it's really new. It's the last 50 years we've been doing that. Before that, there was a much higher percentage that came from starch of some kind. Um and uh, I really do think that our love of baking today... And this is interesting because, I mean, most people, they feel a bigger satisfaction when they baked something than when they cooked something. I mean, it makes me more happy to make a cake than an omelet. Is that scientific or is that gut again? That's like gut, you know. Okay. But I asked like a whole lot of people as you did, well. You did just get through this, so yeah. you have a lot of primary sources. Yeah, I, I do. And, and it's like there's something there that I think is uh, sort of a subconscious way of making sure that all of these really important pieces of information uh, doesn't get lost, you know, that our subconscious makes sure that you find it very pleasurable to feel the smell of a cinnamon bun, you know, so that we make sure that the subsequent generation also gets taught that cinnamon bun is an amazing thing. And, uh, and I think that, that that signifies how important... Uh, the knowledge on preparing grains really was historically when it was about survival, and now it's about pleasure. But you know that. Uh, you mentioned last night
4: that um, Nordic baking culture is, is misunderstood. Yeah. What are some of the common misconceptions, and and what does the book set straight?
6: I mean, I think that the, the the greatest misconception is the like the amount of diversity that's there, uh, and that's simply uh, because of two reasons. One is that Nordic baking culture is carried by people in the home rather, rather than bakeries, like many other baking cultures, um, and naturally then it becomes much more difficult, I mean, compared to the French, for example, which is largely carried by bakeries, uh, it's much more accessible for the uninitiated. I mean, if you go to a Nordic country and you want to have authentic Nordic baking, essentially you have to get into someone's home to see that, whereas if you go to France and you want to experience French baking, you can go to the French bakery. Um, so that's one part of it, like accessibility of the actual you know cultural expression in shape of a, a bun or something, and then the other thing is the amount of available information outside of uh, you know the, like the practicalities outside of the physical object, you know the, the bun or the cake um, and that's uh, mostly online today. Uh, I mean if you put Nordic baking there you're going to get like a million pictures of three or four items you know there's going to be a lot of buns and there's going to be you know a few more things but that does not represent at all like it, it represents a couple of percents of like the diversity that's out there um, and I think this is one of the so the great paradoxes of today with the way information around cooking and baking is shared because more people now have access to more information than ever before so most likely most of us Um, we eat a more diverse range of things today than we've ever done but if you lump all of it together there is less diversity than it's ever been before as well because we all do kind of the same stuff
4: Did you find giving us that, were you able to find connections from different parts of the region that did have like a shared heritage outside of the grains and the basic ingredients, did you find commonality that was not connected because they saw it on the internet but just a, ver- a variation of a certain bun or a certain type of bread um, that you saw as a through line for the, the culture?
6: <clears throat> I mean, the, uh, the, the, the the most important defining factor of what people eat today um, is actually what people could grow in the past. And even though that shouldn't necessarily influence how we make our decisions today, it really does. It's sort of shaped our frame of preference. Um, and, and that's the something that's everywhere. It's a constant that if you uh, uh, you know if you live in a in a region that traditionally couldn't grow wheat, but perhaps only barley. Also today, more like a higher percentage of the breads that you and the population there will choose to eat will be based on barley, regardless if you need to or not. Um, so that's one thing. And then on top of that, it's like the other the cultural filter. And in the Nordics, that. Is largely dependent on who occupied who in history. <laughs> you know, just a basic, yeah. <laughs> just a basic,
4: who was who in charge, Yeah, that's what we're eating. Yeah, it's sort of
6: like that. <laughs> you know, it's fascinating that you can see it still today. So in the Nordic region, you can like, draw a line down the middle and you can take anything east of uh, Sweden, so including Sweden itself. Oland, the island in between uh, Finland and Sweden, Finland, and then all across the Baltics and up through Poland, which is not technically part of the Nordics, but that are culturally corrected, uh, or connected in this sense. They were all occupied by Sweden during several hundred years. Uh, and um, a, lot, a lot of the um, references can be found even today to uh, things that obviously uh, came from Sweden. And then if you look at the western part of the Nordics, it's the same with Denmark. And that's even more apparent, actually, because if you look at Iceland, Greenland, and the Faroe Islands, three places that, um, I mean, two of them still belong to Denmark, but also Iceland was occupied by Denmark for many years. Um, none of these island nations ever grew any any uh, any grains. I mean, grains has not been a part of their um, traditional culture in a large way, simply because of climate. Um, and today, they all have a great tradition of rye breads. They all have a version of the Danish rye bread that was imposed on them at some point in history, fairly recently in most cases, and that's sort of stuck around. But it only makes sense because it was implanted there by the Danes, and it only makes sense because it's the natural trading partner is one of the big rye-growing nations. So, I mean, you, you know, there's not a single grain of rye that grows on Greenland.
4: How long do you think, so um, to to jump to another uh, culture quickly, ramen, which is also a Mm -hmm. recent phenomenon, how long do you think uh, a grain or a staple has to be introduced before people claim it as their
6: own? I mean, this is actually really interesting because many of the traditions that we see as very old, you know, uh, in our culture of today, they really aren't very old. Um, they're actually, in a historical perspective, relatively young, and food culture changes so quickly. And, I mean, there are examples um, back home, I mean, all of these, like all of the sweet baking uh, in the Nordics, which is perhaps what we're mostly well known for outside of the Nordics, except perhaps for the rye breads, but like all of the buns and all of these things, you know. If you look at the practicalities of that, I mean, before industrialization, Pretty much the only source of sweetness would have been honey. That's not very long ago. I mean, that's like 120 or something years ago. Um, And then, you know, we had an introduction of cane sugar, imported cane sugar, which was still very expensive. Uh, It would have been achievable to work with only for like the very wealthiest households. And not even for them, I think that they would have put it in uh, large quantities in breads and cakes and things like that. I mean, it was much more used to season food, to just show off that you were rich, that you could serve sweet foods. And then we started growing sugar beets and making our own sugar. And now we're talking, you know, early uh, 20th century, late 19th century, roundabouts there. Um, And all of a sudden, sugar became much cheaper, much more available, and we had a huge explosion in sweet baking. So a lot of these sweet, you know, fika recipes, the buns and the biscuits and the cookies and cakes and whatnot, uh, that people f- feel it's, it's like the most traditional things we have. I mean, they're not more than roughly a hundred years old. Um, and I think that says quite a lot about how quickly it goes, a couple of generations. I'm curious, you know, it's interesting. Do you think because
4: printing is so rarely available and then the internet and then global communication, everyone's food culture is almost just like, that's the snapshot That if we had not had the rise of this type of global communication, food could have kept evolving in a way that we would never identify or certain things would have not become a trend because also things stick around because people can make money off of
6: it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are different motivations to push for various sort of expressions of culture, for sure. Um, and, uh, And the only thing that we have to always relate to is like the climates where we live. Um, and even that today can be mitigated quite a lot by modern transportation, by moving food around. I mean, I can buy an equally good lemon in Sweden as anyone in southern France can. Um, and, and obviously that leads to a, like a, a more streamlined and less diverse base. and. This has been going on for a long time I mean all since introduction of mechanized transportation really and on top of that we are now also equalizing the cultural layer you know who mm-hmm. made war with who and mm-hmm. the equivalent of that now is like who communicates with who right um, and now we pretty much all share the same pool of information and I mean I as I said before I think that the on the individual level we are eat more diverse now than ever before but on a on a whole, it's poorer than ever before in diversity.
4: When do you take a couple steps out? Speaking of transportation, I'm curious how you did the research for this. In my mind, you're on a motorcycle with your camera <laughs> knocking on doors because you got a hot tip for someone who makes a special treat. How far off
6: am I? Not that far, actually. Yes. I mean, I don't have a motorcycle <laughs> license. So I, but it was not a motorcycle. It was in some rented Skoda, probably. But, I mean, uh, a lot about spending time out in the field, meeting people, and, you know, I, I found that we with both of these books, actually, both The Baking Book and The Nori Cookbook, that um, going somewhere not having a clear agenda was usually the most successful way of doing it. Having extra time is spending that time in someone's home. Um it made it easier to uh, get past the point where people want to show you what they think is special to the point which is interesting, which is when they show you what's there all the time. You know?
4: What were some of the favorites that you got from just being available, some unsung heroes that popped up that you didn't even know exist that <coughs> rose to the top of Magnus's favorite? sweets that may or may not make it into the (laughs) restaurant
6: we're not saying (laughs) i mean one of the most interesting things is that on iceland uh, i found one of uh, like the, the only example really in europe of a steamed bread um that i did not know about beforehand and i think that i would eventually i would have read about it somewhere else or stumbled across it somewhere else but this was very early in the research process and it was a an interesting example of like discovery in the, in, you know, I, I was in a, I was in someone's home and we were uh, photographing a, like a traditional Icelandic horse sausage <laughs> um, and uh, we had dinner and after dinner uh, I saw in the kitchen, I mean we were cleaning up and I saw that uh, this person was preparing, like she was putting dough in a bucket and I asked what she was doing and she said, no, I mean I'm making the breakfast bread for tomorrow. And I was like, "What?" You know? um, and then she showed me. I mean, she, we, we took this bucket, we put her in her car, and we drove a couple of hundred meters um, to an area with volcanic hot springs. And it turns out that the whole village have, you know, sort of a common area there that each house has a, a hole in the ground. And in the evening, you would go there with your bucket with rye bread dough. You put that in the hole in the ground, put the lid on, and then in the morning you come back, and you pull out the steamed bread. Um, and, and this is not in any way unknown, or like, a, it's not me you being all um, uh, sort of uh, colonialistic and like discovering something completely new from the, you know, the, a tribe or anything, but... It's not something that has been talked a lot about, and it's a very unique thing. And for them, I mean, they didn't—they they didn't even think about telling me about this because they showed me the horse sausage. That was like the goal of the whole thing. That was a special part for them, you know, this sausage that's almost not done anymore. It was—I uh, mean, it was essentially the only domesticated meat they had access to for large parts of their time, like the history of Iceland. Um, and they thought that this that the bread thing was just like everyday, you know. That's like opening a carton of yogurt and pouring it in the morning, you know. Um, but to me, it's like one of the most amazing things
4: I've seen. I think. So, did you have a horse meat sausage on steamed bread? <laughs> I did. As it took, how was it? <laughs> I did. <laughs> it was very tasty. I bet. <laughs> um, well, Mangus, thank you for coming
6: by. Um, where thank can you. people get your books? Uh, read about your recipes. I mean, uh, the the books you can get either from. Uh, uh, the most egocentric uh, website bookstop in the world, which is Magnus's uh, or from Amazon or from any other book retailer. I think do you carry any other titles on your bookstore besides your own? No, it says only my own books that only sells signed copies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it ships worldwide. <laughs> Perfect. Um, we're going to take a
4: quick musical break and then we'll be back with the second half of Snacky tunes.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the eight quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Before we got our Le Creuset, the cookware we used most often was an antique Griswold cast iron pan. It didn't take long for me to realize how much I'd been missing enamel cast iron in my life. Le Creuset has the superior heat retention of cast iron, but paired with the unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. Head to lecruset.com HRN, that's L-E-C-R-E uset.com/hrn to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. Hrn listeners will get twenty percent off the new Le Crusade cookbook with the code Hrn.
4: Man, we have uh, pack show today. Pack show today. um Man, I love that fish sauce. We should we should see if they have samples for you because it's the best. Do you like fish sauce? Are love, you a vegetarian?
3: Love fish sauce.
4: You've never had it before, have
3: you? No, but I kind of <laughs> dipped my pizza in this plate that you guys had by accident.
4: Yeah. That's and, not fish sauce, though. All oh, right. That's just That's a cream cream dressing yeah. sauce. It's so we have uh, Sam Austin and Cassandra all joining us. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for joining us on this Sunday.
3: So happy to be here.
4: And a uh, big shout-out to Andrew Oposo for uh, making this all happen.
3: He, man, Andrew has made so many things happen to he, me He's a real life. mensch. A he, real uh,
4: mensch. Andrew of uh, Jessica Six, uh... Her love fair. And also like why we saw him last night and the first thing he said to us was he's like, You know what I'm super excited about? I'm like, What? He's like, Cassandra's gonna be the show tomorrow. And we're like, Wow, that's the first he's just thinking about you.
3: Such a sweet guy. Um, and bass player extraordinary. Nice uh, he's uh, uh,
4: one of the best And best bass face.
5: Oh yeah Top five yeah. bass face
4: <laughs> Just especially when uh, they're doing when they were doing the uh, like fully mixed Hercules Love Fair sets and he was doing the transitions. He was conducting with his face. Oh my God!
3: Man, that was before my time. Was it? Yep. But uh, you,
4: but you've been in New York though.
3: I've been in New York. Andrew and I became very fast friends because of the, the New York connections. Like when we found out that we were drinking at the same bars when we were sixteen. Which ones? Like, um. Well, the Abbey Pub is.
4: Yeah. A oh yeah. Great
3: place to go before you're 21. Blue that and
4: Gold place. is good too. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Cherry Bar <laughs> yeah. on Sixth. Yeah.
3: I was an uptown lady.
4: Oh yeah. Oh. And your family's still up there, right?
3: They are, yeah, yeah, they're still up there. And
4: they're still playing music.
3: Yeah, we had a house concert last night.
4: Yeah, tell me about the house concerts.
3: Um we've been doing them for twelve years now and
4: have you missed any?
3: I've missed a few.
4: Just a few though.
3: Just a few. I try to be there whenever I can. Um
4: Are they are they an annual thing during the wintertime?
3: They're actually monthly, believe it or not. And we're having two this month.
4: Um are you only missed a few and they're monthly?
3: They're monthly, yeah. So what are they? Um, well, last night we had a harpist, a solo harpist. It was beautiful. And, and who's we? Uh, we is my family. I, <laughs> I am a member of a family of five, the Jenkins family. And my mom actually has a blog called the Jenkins House Concerts blog, and she posted snacky tunes today. Oh, yeah. Thanks, mom. Very excited. It went out to the blog community. Oh, big
4: on the uptown dear <laughs> mommy mom. bloggers. Yeah, Thank yeah. you yeah. so much. <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, but basically, uh, it's a, a format of we invite 65 people or so to our house that's a comfortable number sometimes it gets bigger than that and
2: where do you
3: live i live on the upper west side believe it or not you wouldn't think that this apartment would fit 65 people but we make it happen every month and we invite a guest artist usually a band to come play two sets of music there's always an intermission in between when people get wine and food and Usually my family will open in some way, shape, or form. And so last night my sister and I sang a Carter family song. And my brother played Naturally. a new song that he wrote. Yep. <laughs> Naturally. Um, and next, in a couple of weeks, we have Tony Trishka, the great banjo player, coming to play. It's a holiday-themed show.
4: Can I ask you a question? <laughs> of course. Partridge Family or Brady Bunch?
3: <laughs> We've gotten actually more, um, what's it called... The Wes Anderson film, uh, Royal Tannenbaum. Royal, t- we got that more than we did Partridge Family. That seems like or a,
4: a, a modern thing. And and what does does New your York, does your fair. entire family play?
3: We all play. My dad is a piano player. He, growing up, um, he made a living playing in all the hotels around New York. So the St. Regis, oh the God. Plaza. Carlisle? Um, the, the Carlisle. He just played a gig at the Carlisle. I he, he was did. very excited about it. He's he likes it like He's one of those like,
4: hotel piano players he's of like yesteryear. Exa-
3: he's kind of a dying breed.
4: Oh, my God. What's his tip cup look like?
3: It depends on who's coming in that night. Uh, yeah. it, you know, I, I actually don't know. I haven't seen it in a while.
4: I imagine Goblet, but I don't think that's Yeah. <laughs> or, like Or Vaz. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I think it depends on the place.
4: I think one of my fantasies as a child was being that type of piano player, but then I... You know, gave up. It's crazy.
3: He knows so many songs.
4: Does he have a bow tie that he's never actually tied, just that's draped around his neck?
3: (laughs) You know, he used to wear a tuxedo to work. Oh my God. And that became kind of uncool at a certain point. Can you
4: let me know when he's playing next? And I can just go and, like, sit Actually, we should just actually have him come in.
3: I would love to. Do you guys have a grand piano? We don't, but
4: (laughs) would he be willing to, uh, like, Sort some, figure something out.
3: Absolutely, he's okay. got a he's got a travel case. Can he just, just like if he Austin. could
4: just play if he could just riff in the background for an hour?
3: Oh, that would be the best.
4: Yeah, he riffs right.
3: He, ri- My he a, riffs. My dad riffs. Just on. one
4: more story about your dad. Just one more question. I mean, I have actually a lot of questions. I
3: hope he's listening. Right um,
4: soon. does he have any of those? Like, I was with you know Belinda Carlisle. Like, really? Wrong the one. Rainbow Room and no, I haven't the, the, like the rap. Hat. Oh yeah, like and Bobby the, and. And Frank,
5: oh, Bernadette, I, I I'm have sorry.
4: stories. I don't know. We, I don't know Bernadette how much time Peters. we have. We have time. We have well, time for this.
3: When yeah, <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, I remember going to Little Italy, and my mom just knowing everybody down there, just be like, "Hey, Patsy," hey, da, da, da. and later on, I found out that they used to play at SPQR, which is now closed. May it rest in peace. Um,
4: Pour on a glass of you Vino know, for it.
3: They were yeah, they were the house band, and they would play. Um, occasionally, they would play, uh, I'm air quoting, private parties. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really like a mafia hangout. Wow. Oh. And they were there. General's uh, Club, speakeasy. Uh, yeah, they they were. Um, they would play so that it was just, it had the vibe of, of a party.
4: And what was uh, touring with your family like growing up?
3: Touring was really fun. We actually spent a lot of time in Maine, so I was excited Ooh. to hear some Maine stories today.
4: Did you eat lobster up there?
3: We ate tons of lobster. Uh, I wonder we, if
4: they ever went to your grandparents' restaurant. Maybe.
3: That would be Yeah, that would be some stuff. That would blow my mind. Oh, I, yeah.
4: I would have to lay down <laughs> if uh, you and your parents went to...
3: Well, we'll have to go there at some point on our way up this summer. We go to Swan's Island every summer. And there's a tiny festival um, about halfway up the coast. And we would travel in a 56, 1956 GMC bus to get there. Um with lots of instruments in tow, um, and at that point it felt more like Beverly Hillbillies than it oh. did okay. Royal Tannenbaum. Okay. So.
4: Well, that movie hadn't come out yet, so it's it's an <laughs> yeah. unfair it's an unfair comparison. Yeah, uh,
3: but yeah that we spent a lot of time traveling that way, and it's currently in upstate New York. Uh, the motor needs some work, but Dad's Dad's working on it. <laughs> it's um,
4: working. Well, why don't we? <laughs> yeah. uh Why don't we get a song? Oh okay. my god! Yeah. Okay.
3: Um, yeah. Well, we were thinking about playing one that we just wrote actually this month um, after listening to Snacky Tunes, um, shortly after Lou Reed passed away on Daylight Savings Day.
5: I believe in the perfect stardust of a melody This day is a perfect day
4: Best drum setup that we have seen here. Someone who really <laughs> understood the room that we were playing in. Uh,
3: this is Austin Vaughn on the drums, by yeah. the way.
4: What up, Austin? Let's, say what's just, up. Hello, audience. Let's. Uh, and Cassandra's mom. <laughs> and Cassandra's mom's follow- blog follower.
3: Yeah, <laughs> and uh, my dad.
4: And your dad. Let's. Um, how did the three of you meet? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh,
3: well, actually, uh, I. Yeah. Let's get Austin in on this. Hello
8: about this. <laughs> this goes deep.
3: Let's let Austin speak for a second. Sick.
8: Sam and I uh, met probably before we were in high school, right? Because we were both from North Carolina. Yeah, 15. And Sam, well, too bad you didn't bring your clarinet, but when I met Sam, he was playing saxophone. Oh, I was.
4: You promised clarinet, no clarinet. Yeah. I, I forgot it. No, Space. man. All it's right. It's a spacey Sunday. We're but still. Have Sundays. It's, it's Sundays. tough on Sundays. Yeah, it's yeah. tough. But
8: yeah, so we met each other when we were, like, young teenagers and then realized that we were both going to end up going to this school in North Carolina called North Carolina School of the Arts. Yeah. And we were in high school there, like, with college kids, and we had the time of our lives. And then... And we were roommates. That's true. We were each other's first roommates, and now we live together now. Yeah. Uh, but, so then, when Sam moved to New York way before I did, and he was like, you definitely should move here, I was like, I don't want to do that. And then I did. And then... I met Cassandra through a guy named Jonathan Rosen who is brothers with a guy named Michael Rosen who's in a band called Icewater. And I introduced Sam to Cassandra it's or vice versa. That's
4: true. Yeah.
8: At the Manhattan Inn. It was at the Manhattan Inn.
4: Who also has a piano player from time to yeah. time. They
3: yeah, do, like very much like my dad. Yeah, has your dad actually. ever
4: has your dad ever been there?
3: No, I really want to get him a gig there. Yeah. But yeah. It would
4: make the story. It would, like, add another layer to the story you just told. <laughs>
3: let's add that layer. Yeah,
4: let, let's add that layer. <laughs> Dad, if you're listening, let's there's, add the layer. Yeah.
3: There's there's some really good music happening at the Manhattan Inn these yeah. days.
4: And uh, shout out to Brooke, who uh, is yeah. one of the founders of the, like b- old friend of ours who started yeah. Glassland Gallery. Cool. She's oh, cool. amazing. Yeah. And she just had a kid. Mm-hmm. She did have a kid. That baby is cute up yeah. on the
3: Instagram. Yeah. Up. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> I was giving Austin a little thumbs
9: up. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, that was a good I,
8: I, I used to have a radio show. I had multiple radio shows in college. Oh yeah. So
9: I don't, uh, I don't have the he's a radio mic, man.
2: Uh,
4: so, now, when the three of you met, how did it kind of transform to, you know, what we're looking at here? <laughs>
3: That's a good question. Yeah, well, when did three become can I, one. Can I collaboration? Yeah. Uh well, uh austin introduced us at the manhattan inn it was a greg saunier solo drums night um and we were all there hanging out appreciating the music and um what is solo
4: drums
3: solo so austin you want to show <laughs> us what solo drums is uh, it's when you play alone when you play alone oh so like literally the, it's my, really exciting yeah.
9: the drummer in my band his name is max Mario and he works with at the manhattan Inn. he's a bartender and he curates because he's a drummer he curates this night i think it's usually on sundays And it's all like solo drummers, and they come in and and it's yeah. Wait, is it solo drummers together?
4: No, no, by themselves. A series. Oh, okay. okay. It's a series. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, but shortly thereafter, we we I went to go see Celestial Shore, Sam's band, at Glasslands, and we were all hanging out outside. And Austin looked at the two of us and he said, "You know, you guys, you you should collaborate. I think that'd be good." And and Sam's response was. Oh, there will be collaboration <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with full confidence. And here we are today.
4: Wow. Wow. That is a bold. That's a bold. It Sunday. was that bold. Is, I loved that. that, that. Was a it's a good middle. line.
9: That was
3: before
4: yeah. we yeah. were
9: dating.
3: Yep.
4: Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> oh you, <laughs> need, <laughs> you guys are dating?
3: Yeah. Let's add that layer. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you,
4: <laughs> need, you need lines like that. Sorry. So there's a lot of collaboration going there's on. A lo-
3: <laughs> 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 yeah. Sam and I have been dating ever since, actually. And
4: wow. Was it that line? Yeah.
3: Yep. That line kinda did it for me. Yep. Really? Yeah.
4: Like firework
3: And not to mention that uh, I was also going to see Sam play guitar and and that did it for me we, too. We hey, made
4: note, note to listeners, dudes and bands get girls. <laughs> you heard it here first. You heard on it here. <laughs> either either pick up Go a Go get that guitar right now. Yeah, pick up a chef's knife. Yeah. I'll get some girls. He's a good we, cook
3: too. Uh, do oh, you what, what do, do you guys c- cook together? Um, well Austin and Sam have a really great dish. That they made for that me early stands. on. I can't take any okay, well,
9: no, that's overused. Let's talk about another no, no, dish. No, 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 What's this <laughs> dish? Yeah. Well, actually, see, I hesitate because we used it. My band did an interview with Brooklyn Magazine, and they do this thing where you're you're given a budget of twenty dollars, and and you have to cook, and they take pictures and interview you while you're doing it. Well, look here's the deal. No to one's heard of this the show, so you can talk no, about No, no. <laughs> <that. Okay. laughs> well, Everyone's Anyway, if you are show. listening, it's a cool. It's a cool thing What's in the, the Brooklyn Magazine. It's nachos, but it's it's kale quinoa nachos and chicken How
0: and chicken. Well, you can
9: optional chicken oh, thing for, for, for the uh, veg. Yeah, so you just like have a layer. of... you make your own corn tortilla <laughs> nachos, and then you put quinoa with red, or red quinoa with black beans, garlic, um, and then uh, you kind of throw that on top of the nachos and then put kale and then put it in the oven and the kale gets crispy and the nachos are crispy and the, it's like this kale mm. sandwich thing and then you put sriracha on it of course yeah
4: of course get sriracha while you
9: can it's good you guys all know about that right yeah oh yeah crazy it, oh, wait. crazy
4: is it closed down or is it just closed down temporarily
8: i think it's temporary i think they're, it's temporary. They're still selling it there's hard at the there's
4: too much money to be made in sriracha for it to close down Folder. I got I got so much money in Sriracha stock right yeah. now that I'm I'm nervous. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. Why don't we but, uh, Why do we hear another song? Okay. Okay. What are you guys gonna play? What do you want to
3: do? Well, I was gonna say if if we were gonna talk about one of my favorite recipes, we call it rabbit food, and it's some some kind of like muesli creation.
9: Um, it's the best.
3: It's really delicious and healthy, but we're gonna play a song called Rabbit. Oh.
9: Um,
3: that we wrote this summer. It was uh my first collaboration with Sam. And Austin Austin plays drum on our recording of it.
9: Okay. Ready? Are you there, Austin? Yeah. Okay, ready?
3: It's also uh, an adaptation of a Wallace Stevens poem.
5: The end of the day The shapeless shadow Shadow covers the sun
4: for that. that. was amazing. That was <laughs> <Thank> amazing. you. <laughs> um, Thank you so much. You have so many different types of drumsticks and accoutrement. Like, it's amazing.
9: I only you have to see his, uh, him play solo. Chopsticks and regular I was going to say,
4: <laughs> and you hold your drumstick in a way that makes me think that I would love to see you really go to town on a drum set.
8: You should come, you should come see me play sometime.
4: I will absolutely come see you play. You want
8: to you hear me pimp all the times I'm playing this week? Yeah. yeah. What's we, today? Well...
3: Can we talk about Tuesday night's show?
8: That's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. Talk well, because Sam is on that one too. Yeah. So, well, maybe Sam. I don't really know oh, yeah. what's up with that, but I'm super excited to be doing it. So, go ahead, Sam.
9: Okay, my friend, our friend Luke Temple of uh, Luke Temple and Here We Go Magic is—he's been booking a series at Union Pool. That's kind of based around improv, improv, improvising, creating music spontaneously spontaneous composition yes that that would be the instantaneous way. composition sure so Luke uh, Luke booked Austin uh, Austin's going to be playing with a legend uh, Daniel Carter um, a legend of the New York imp- improvisational scene um, going back to the 50s 60s. I mean, He no. was, like, born in the 45 or something Alright, So, like.
8: so he, he was in New York. Got started the, at six. He came, yeah. He came For in the much, 70s. Once he got, he yeah, once you got yeah, his hand on those really, pots and pans, yeah. he really just... You know, stopped. he actually was living in North Carolina as a child.
9: Well, that, and Ohio. That's, that makes sense. You guys can talk about your favorite restaurants. At any rate. <laughs> so I, yeah, Austin's I'm playing I'm playing a duo with, with Daniel Carter. And I'm playing... That's I'll be actually playing clarinet on this show with um, Jason. As long N- as you remember it, right? Yes, yeah, so <laughs> remember Ouch. it with Jason Nazary, who's another great drummer uh, of this band, Little Women, and um, uh, some other great friends. Are
4: it's there any called. women in Little Women?
9: No, of course not. No, course but not. have you know. seen?
8: Have you seen this band? No. Are they all it, really big dudes?
4: They're yeah.
9: they're all pretty
8: big. They're not yeah. big.
9: They're not big. Well, they're from Brooklyn. I mean, they're yeah. not like right, your average
8: good. skinny, tall guy in a band. Little Women is the Little Women is the best band in Brooklyn.
4: Oh. <laughs> Whoa! I second wow. that opinion. Oh, but I guess
8: Darius lives in Queens. They're the best <laughs> band in New York.
4: Ooh! Ooh.
9: Drop the mic. <laughs> yeah. That's a big. Uh, these are expensive know.
5: mics. You're <laughs> on Snacky. Teams.
4: Yeah, all uh, and, five of you. And for the three of you, when are you playing next?
5: Um, I,
3: I think our next show is probably going to be. Uh, at the Jenkins House concert. Oh, really? I'm going to see if Austin's available. I haven't asked him yet. We were yet.
9: supposed to play tomorrow night, but it got canceled. It got
3: canceled. Uh, Friends and Lovers is a new venue, but they're they're getting their permit straightened out. Where but, is that? Um, it's in Crown Heights, actually. Uh, so hopefully they'll be up and running soon. But on the 21st, uh, we might be doing a house show and then probably into the new year.
4: And uh, what's next for you guys after shows?
3: After shows, well, we just recorded the song that we played first Um, and I would like to, I'm working on writing songs for a full length album I'm hoping to record and have done by the spring and summer.
4: (laughs) And is it just you writing or is there outside influence?
3: Um, I write a lot of my own songs. Sam and I have been writing together a lot Um, and I love also taking on the songs of other friends. A couple songs on my EP were written by friends of mine and I love reinterpreting other people's music so uh we'll see what happens when i put it all down on tape and
4: uh final question before we hear one more song how do people get invited to your house jams
3: um you can check out my mom's blog (laughs) my mom had a blog long before i ever did first wave um
4: did your mom teach you how to blog
3: (laughs) she kind of did actually oh my
4: god that's amazing yeah mom i can't post this photo (laughs) (laughs) just rolls her eyes (laughs) come here
3: she's so high tech she's got her ipad Oh, um, uh,
4: same with our mom. She always says she doesn't want to ever be le- feel left behind.
3: Cool. Oh, I yeah. hope she she's listening today, right? Yeah, yeah. Did you
4: call her today? Hi, mom. I did. So did said. I. Hey, mom. Hey, dad. Um. So why don't you give people the nuts and bolts where they can find um, you, follow you, uh, get the EP? Well,
3: you can check out my my Bandcamp has uh two of the songs that we're playing today, and that's just Cassandra Jenkins Bandcamp and Facebook and CassandraJenkins.com. I've got. My last record came out on vinyl. I printed it in Brooklyn. I pressed it in Brooklyn. And. Uh, I f- you have to press it with? With uh, a company that is unfortunately no longer. Oh it's man. called EKS. And it's, it's fortunate that they are no longer. <laughs> they they really? owe us some yes. money.
9: <laughs>
3: um, but I've, I've got 100 vinyls left.
4: Ooh. So How many did you have?
3: Hotcakes. Only 300. Okay. That's so
4: pretty. <laughs> good. Hey, Brandon's 101. You know? <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, you can find those online and you can get in touch with me on Facebook
4: uh, well great well uh, everyone thanks for listening to Snacky Tunes uh, I think we have one more show you know, this year we one more uh, show. who's the food guest next week I have to, I have to. <laughs> uh, we have Rad Dads as a band next week what? so uh, oh, listen up and if you're around come out to the Refinery29 pop-up oh. store 21 Mulberry Street yeah self-promo baby weird it's not weird a little weird um, Alright, well, um, I also want to thank uh, Anne-Marie Saltwater Farm <laughs> and uh, Paul and Kong and Rob um, Oh, and shout out to Glassery, who makes the best rabbit dish in all of New York yeah. Honestly, uh, it's Well, I mean, we were we were doubters We were, doubters, we were and, doubters, and I told Sarah last night I said, listen, this is like the fourth time I've been here I've never ordered the rabbit dish If you like rabbit Go. They say it for two. That's for di- like maybe it's two of the Little Women, but like it's it's like a four person dish. It's amazing. Have you had it? Mm-hmm. I have. It's amazing. The charred pieces taste like octopus. It's crazy. <laughs> it's amazing. Um. So hop on over there. All right, and uh, be back with one more episode. And uh, thanks for seeing And what's the last song you're gonna take us out with? Well,
3: I like how much we're talking about animals on this show today. We had lobster talk. We had fish talk. We had rabbit talk. And this is a song called The Bird.
4: Okay. Live on (laughs) Snagitunes.